Hello and welcome to this Centre for Progressive Policy event. Uh, thank you all for joining us today. This is a really special in conversation we're having on the small matter of the future of capitalism. Now, I'm Ben Franklin, I'm co-director of the Centre for Progressive Policy. Uh, just a few uh, housekeeping uh, bits and pieces, um, which are really important, of course, um, but we're webcasting the session on YouTube, Facebook and Twitter channels. So hello to anyone joining us on any of those. If that's you, please tweet questions and comments via at Centre Pro Policy using the hashtag hashtag CPP Good Business um, and, and or to join our Facebook Live channel as well. Those joining here on Zoom can simply ask questions via the Q&A function. So please do do that um, throughout the event. That would be absolutely brilliant. So then we can have a great conversation. Um, a quick reminder, this is our last um, CPP event of the year, but we're looking forward to seeing anyone again in January when we'll be launching our big report on the women in the labour market, which is a big programme of work we've been doing over the last uh, 12 months or so. So please do subscribe to our newsletter if you haven't already done so um, to make sure you receive all information about the CPP, our events and, uh, and excellent work. And I should remind you all that we are almost an award-winning think tank as Prospect have nominated us for two awards at this year's uh, Think Tank Awards. And um, before I introduce you to today's speakers, I'd like to say a quick few words about the Centre's Role of Business Work Programme, which was a big programme work we did last year, actually, but something we're going to be continuing on next year, too. And uh, we identified businesses that want to take more social responsibility for people and places in the wake of the pandemic. And yet only a fifth annually review the impact of their businesses on their local communities. And only a third use suppliers that directly benefit those communities as well. And we did, a, this is based on a big survey of businesses we, we did about a year or so ago. Off the back of that and some other evidence that we collected, we called for a strengthening of the Companies Act, echoing calls from the British Academy around purposeful business and clearer frameworks for measuring social impact as well. We also argued for stronger restrictions in terms of the use of zero-hour contracts um, to reduce the often dire consequences of insecure employment and poor quality work as well. And this is something we want to be building on in 2022. We're going to be exploring the purpose of finance, be that pensions, savings or investments, in supporting a sustainable, productive economy and a more equal society. That will be in collaboration with the all-party parliamentary group on inclusive growth, so stay tuned for that. Now, today's event places the future of capitalism at the centre of the discussion and will be an in-conversation between the journalist Edie Lush and the spectators Martin van der Veer about some of the ideas in his latest book. Edie is executive editor of Hub Culture and has covered many events from the World Economic Forum, Davos, to COP summits. She is executive producer and co-host for the CBS News Digital Distributed Global Goals Cast podcast. I hope I've got that right. And a former economics and political correspondent for Bloomberg Television, amongst many other prestigious media outlets. Talking to Edie will be the business editor of The Spectator, Martin van der Veer. He has written many articles for The Daily Telegraph and is the author of several books, including The Good, The Bad and The Greedy. Why We've Lost Faith in Capitalism, which shapes today's In Conversation. So, without further ado, I'll hand you straight over to Edie to kick off this exciting event. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I'm delighted to be here uh, in conversation with Martin. And in case you don't know the name of his book, I have put it up here behind me on my green screen, just in case you need to take note of it while we speak. Uh, so, Martin, let's get straight in. Uh, and I'm delighted to be kicking off with the, this question because we're actually about to head off to the British American Project uh, Leadership Network meeting in Glasgow. One of the last times we were together was actually in, in Seattle for a similar gathering. And I had gone off to see Boeing uh, as my sort of site visit for the meeting. And actually not long after that visit, Boeing had to pull the 737 MAX flight after tragic crashes, which we might talk about a bit later, whether that had anything to do uh, with being such an enormous company. You, meanwhile, uh, had gone to see Amazon and you had a very eventful visit. I'd love to hear how that visit was the genesis of this book. Uh, thank you very much, Edie. Thank you, Ben, for that nice introduction. It's a pleasure to be talking to this audience today. So yeah, there we are, exactly three years ago this weekend in Seattle. 
uh, conference group assembled and then broke up into tour groups. And I had ticked the box that said I wanted to go on the Amazon headquarters tour. And I formed up with one of our colleagues who worked at Amazon, who had a clipboard and uh, was leading this group. And off we go, we go into Amazon headquarters, we show our passports, which I, I thought was quite a sort of intrusive requirement for visiting the headquarters of a retailer. But anyway, they took down all our passport details. We set off on this, frankly, bland propaganda tour of, of Amazon HQ. And we got as far as the Amazon Go mini supermarket, the prototype of the, there's now one in Ealing, I believe, mm, close to where around the road from me, down the road. Um, uh, but this was the prototype of a little supermarket that doesn't have a checkout. It registers with cameras and sensors if you've taken something off the shelf. And if you leave the building with it, it charges your credit card. And our guide said, you have to download the app before entering the store. So I download laboriously this app. The moment it said I downloaded it, her phone went bzz, 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 and panic on her face. And she's going, who's Martin? Where's Martin? And they're saying, well, that's Martin over there. And she, she rushed over to me and she, she said, you are not authorized to be on this tour. You must leave immediately. Anyway, short story, we have an absolute flaming stand-up row. What seemed to have happened was either, uh, what, what had originally happened was Amazon's PR department had said, I couldn't go on the tour. No one had told us that. That mm. message hadn't come back. Um, they either discovered I was on the tour because they laboriously went through all the passport details and they didn't check with the list, or worse, by downloading the app, I told the mighty database of personal data at Amazon that I was on their premises and it triggered an alert and they threw me out. And uh, I just thought, that, wow, that is so sinister and autocratic. That is such a kind of little parable of mighty big, you know, capitalism, that kind of thing we don't understand, misuse of personal data, mm. sort of bullyingness of big digital capitalism. And yet I love Amazon. I buy stuff all the time. It's the most efficient business. It's marketplace is a great thing for small booksellers, even if it's crushed big booksellers, you know, that it rose, gave rise to so many different moral and uh, you know, ethical questions about capitalism all in one 30 minute episode. So uh, I was offered the chance I could probably have come and joined you at Boeing. But I said, No, no, that's fine. I'll just kind of walk around and think about capitalism. Thank you very much. And that was the genesis of this book. Yeah. So you talk about three different strands in the book about why business is under scrutiny now more than ever. Uh, environmental issues, the battle against COVID-19, and an issue around how companies can be tainted by their connections to colonial exploitations. Can you say a little bit more about why you picked these particular strands? Well, so what I said is those three strands have arisen, I mean, more or less in that chronological order, in effect, over the three-year period that I've written the book. Those are the thing, things that have been right at the top of the agenda. I mean, clearly, um, environmental damage um, and the need for action towards net zero was rising up the agenda all through the last decade. But it's only, I think, you would probably agree that in the last couple of years, really quite recently, big corporations have taken this on board. It's moved from the PR department to the you know, chief executive's desk as mm -hmm. being central to the strategy because the investors are really on this now. The customers want to feel good about who they do business with. They want companies to um, do the right thing environmentally. Regulation and finance are moving in the same direction. So. I take a positive view, you may disagree having been at COP, but I take a positive view that I think the big business world is now pivoting very rapidly to a positive front foot position on climate action. I wouldn't have said that three years ago at that sort of Amazon mm -hmm. moment, as it were. Similarly on COVID actually, 
Um, I had two observations in the course of last year. One was many, many businesses, small and large, rapidly pivoting their working methods, their product lines and so on to cope with the pandemic. Initially, I thought, crikey, this is going to topple capitalism. This is such a cataclysmic change. Only government action can deal with it. And, you know, we may revert to a kind of earlier socialist mode of of life actually because this is this is a cataclysm but quite rapidly i saw lots of businesses that i'm aware of pivoting being very resilient very creative in how they dealt with it and of course we can talk about the farmer industry but absolutely remarkable um action of the farmer industry to take vaccines from the laboratory to billion dose mass production in astonishingly short period of time. And I would contend only capitalism can do that. The third one, colonialism, is rather different, isn't it? And that's now a very hot topic. Most businesses don't have any connection to colonialism. However, there are many, most natural resources businesses are extractive in the broadest sense, and they operate in poor parts of the world, and they act in a sort of colonialist, modern colonialist, way so there's all of that but the colonialism past and so on if we talk about philanthropy why don't we come back to that one there so we'll come back to that we'll come back to the issues around pharma and i should say to the audience any questions you have do start putting them into the chat and we'll we'll bring them in or you can tweet them uh as ben said at the top so you mentioned though and in fact, despite the, the, the title of the book, you do say that capitalism is the, the greatest engine of human progress ever invented. And that is still, that's a very strong statement. So say why your, your unshakable uh, thought about capitalism remains true. Okay, so when I talk about capitalism, I do make a distinction between Big capitalism, I mean the action of big corporations through stock markets and bank financing and so on. I mean, the operation of big corporations is really what I am very critical of uh, for all its, its sins and mishaps of the last 30 or 40 years, as opposed to entrepreneurship, which I think is a, a constantly, largely very good thing and an admirable human trait to be an entrepreneur, to build a business, to perfect a product and so on. Um, but I, despite all its faults, I continue to have faith in capitalism because as a means of organizing capital and resources and people and skills and talents, it hasn't really been bettered. Whether you look at the development of, you know, railways, steamships, and industrial textile mills in the 19th century, um, through aviation in the 20th century to the, you know, digital giants of today. You know, that is capitalism at work. That is most of the elements of human progress. There are other elements of human progress to do with the creation of welfare states and so on, the advance of democracy, the advance of public health care, those are things that governments have done. But even behind those, there are also capitalists out there are, you know, companies that have produced the goods that are needed for healthcare, for public transport, for other public goods. So, so I believe in it as a model. And I think perhaps we might discuss later, I have had a look at the alternatives, mm -hmm. you know, mutual and cooperative kind of alternatives. They're nice, but they don't scale up. That's the problem. We can come to that. Okay, we'll come back to that. I want to tackle this issue around uh, inequality because <clears throat> there is an argument that it is one of the biggest drivers uh, at the moment in the world. It's an issue that I talk about on the podcast, the Global Goals Cast, a lot. In fact, it's one of the sustainable development goals, number 10. And despite progress in the world, along a lot of other measures, inequality is still increasing by most measures. So I wonder how this fits within this narrative. Yeah, very, it's a very good question. And it works, the answer works both ways. We can say, for example, that the uh, 
advance of capitalism as it affects emerging markets and poorer nations has in many ways been good. We look at mainland China, the increasing prosperity of the coastal regions of China where the industry is concentrated is due to China allowing capitalism to, to, to grow. If we look at the kind of the countries that produce the garments, the cheap garments that are sold in the you know, Oxford Street stores, you may say that's totally exploitative and uh, contributing to inequality. Writers like Martin Wolf would say on the contrary, that working in garment factories, which are obliged to have decent work conditions, um, particularly for women, is better than subsistence agriculture, prostitution, other choices that are available to very poor women in very poor countries, and so on, and that actually globalization, um, in that sense, has contributed to raising living standards in some of the poorest parts of the world. That's assuming, of course, that the work conditions, welfare conditions in factories, the wage rates are fair. But, and that wasn't the case, probably, largely, some years ago. It's much more so now, because again, the investors and the customers of the big corporations who buy the cheap manufactured goods are much more aware of those factors. Um, if we think in domestic terms, how does inequality play with capitalism in the UK? Well, there is a bad thing, in my opinion, which is that the differential between senior and chief executive pay and average workers pay within the same companies has absolutely multiplied. Mm. 50 years ago, you would have said a multiple of about 20 applied. It was the same as the multiple that applied in Soviet Russia. And it was no incentive at all to the generation of people like my father, um, who was a, a banker all his life, but he was never very well or never highly paid in modern terms. I mean, the multiple was very low. Fair enough, in the Thatcher era, an adjustment to the multiple was, was clearly justified if you, you know, if you were not a socialist, put it that way. It rose to say 50 times by the turn of the century. Okay, that seems a more reasonable thing between the guy who has the responsibility of running a giant business and the guy who, you know, drives him to work, let's say. But it's now gone to 120 to 150 times. In the US, it's probably higher than that. It keeps on going up, even though the companies are not necessarily performing better in any measure, either for their shareholders, for their customers, for the planet, however you look at it, they're not doing better and better, but their top people are being paid more and more. So that plays against inequality. Mm. On the other hand, we can say, hang on, simply by being successful and profitable, big companies contribute to um, diminishing inequality in the sense that they help a big pension industry to survive and prosper so that people are going to be looked after in their old age. Pension funds invest in these companies. We now have a shift, I think, towards better working conditions, not the zero-hour contracts. Treat the casual worker like a a, you know, a full employee, give them paternity, maternity, holiday leave, and so on. There's a movement to do away with the clear inequalities of working conditions. And there is a benefit uh, that works against inequality from a prosperous and successful capitalist system, I, I would say. So let's have a look at the time that we're still in, uh, depending on where you are in the world. This a time of COVID-19. I wonder how you think capitalism fare, fares in this time. You spoke a little bit about, about working conditions, but what about manufacturing vaccines? How do pharmaceuticals come out? Oh, I think on the whole, uh, you know, shining, uh, I don't know of any, I can't think of any example in which a vaccine manufacturer has been accused of exploitation, uh, of unfair pricing. Uh, if you think of the one that's taken the most flack for some odd reason is AstraZeneca, British-Swedish company, 
which actually said right from the start that they would produce their vaccines at no profit. They would supply them at cost, and that's what they've done. They got very little credit for that. The others, uh, Pfizer to the fore, uh, have been doing it for profit. No one really objected to that. The prices are, are regulated. And um, so I think the speed at which they geared up their manufacturing processes to do that was quite remarkable. The um, cooperation between university science, government, and big pharma was terrific. Now, the, the issue, I think perhaps where you're going, uh, I guess, is, but hang on, we're not supplying the poor world with vaccines. Yeah, I mean, I, all, most vaccines. of the vaccines have gone to the rich world and, and most of Africa remains unvaccinated. You could argue that this is an issue for multilateralism, but multilateralism has failed. So, yeah. so what role for business but, then? Yes, you could. Um, I myself would argue that is uh, an issue for, for, for governments uh, and UN bodies and so on to push for. Um, it's the same argument that applies to kind of over-the-counter drugs supplies to poorer countries. They could, you know, the licensing of the, of the formula for the vaccine, should it be given away? That was a big issue. And I think Joe Biden initially took up a position saying there should be, you know, um, patent waivers for vaccines. And then he backed off, am I right? And, and patent waivers, which yeah. would, be, would, would be an obvious way to go forward. I think that, that, that government issue arose to, from South Africa and India supported it, um, yeah. but it didn't go anywhere and it hasn't gone through the WTO. Um, but I think, I think realistically, uh, the companies that make the vaccines can't be expected actually to give them away in the sort of volumes that would be required to solve that problem. So that does require multilateral government interventions um, to buy the patents, pay for the patents in some way, so that the patent waiver could then be applied. But even Bill Gates at one stage was saying, hang on, you can't just give everyone the patent and say, get on with it, because they don't have the manufacturing capability, yeah. for example. So somebody has to fund pharma factories in poor countries so they can make the stuff. It's not, it's not a simple issue, and I don't think it should come back as a point of blame on the big pharma companies who, on the whole, have done a remarkably good job in this. I period. think there was some issue around pricing when, uh, when some of the countries went directly to the pharmaceuticals. I think that was definitely an issue, and they were asking for rather unfair, um, unfair guarantees. Uh, but and that is in part because they had tried to go, they'd gone around Covax because they needed more vaccines than Covax would would provide. But that maybe that's too much of a detail. You mentioned earlier that you had looked at some of the alternative paths uh, to capitalism. We've got a great one here in the UK where we, we both live uh, in John Lewis, John Lewis. So I'd love to know a little bit about the John Lewis partnership. Um, why is that a little bit different? Why hasn't that spread? Yeah, and there was even a few years ago, uh, it was Nick Clegg, now of course an executive of Facebook, one of the, you know, <laughs> one of the satans of, uh, of capitalism, <laughs> as it were, uh, who, who, you talked mean meta. About, who, <laughs> who talked about the John Lewis economy and wouldn't that be a good thing? Uh, what he meant was an employee ownership economy. John Lewis is owned by its partners who are some 80,000 uh, people who work in either John Lewis or Waitrose stores. And it's a wonderful business and it pleases its customers. Um, and it's a rare example of a sort of communitarian collectivist business model that, that has achieved scale. However, why aren't there hundreds of John Lewis's? Well, first of all, I should say, because I take a bit of stick sometimes on this one, there are hundreds of employee owned businesses, but almost all the others are really quite small. Mm. and specialist. Um, John Lewis uh, Unipart that makes car components is another one worth, worth a look. But anyway, how could John Lewis exist? Well, because Mr. John Spedan Lewis, many decades ago, who owned this big drapery store in Oxford Street, 
He gave the business to his employees. It was initially a great philanthropic gift uh, that, that got it started. And in order to create similar businesses, you need similar phil philanthropists who want to give them away. There are people, there's a guy in the electronics business, Julian Richer, who I think has given a big chunk of his business away. There just aren't very many of them. And then when you've done it, if your business needs more capital, how do you, how do you raise new equity from your 80,000 shop workers? You probably can't. So if you have to go to the market, you're going to dilute the, uh, you know, the worker owners. Um, so if the business itself wants to get bigger and bigger, there's a problem of where to raise capital. And to replicate it requires a whole lot of phil philanthropists. They, you know, the other models that were, I, I think the co-op, the cooperative movement in the UK is a very admirable business. It is very widespread in corner shops and also in funeral services. But again, nobody's replicating the co-op these days and even you know one part of it the cooperative bank embarrassed itself enormously and you know uh, no longer sort of really lived up to the cooperative ideals so it's vulnerable to damage in that way building societies were great they were a savings and lending mechanism that enabled generations of people to buy their first homes they were very altruistic frugal sensible businesses when the opportunity came to sort of cash out in the 90s, a lot of the savers um, saw the opportunity to take a windfall when these companies listed on the stock market instead of being mutuals. So they took the windfall and the building society movement collapsed from two or 300 societies to about 40 that survive now. There's still one big one, the nationwide, that's always worth looking at because that continues the model exactly as before, and it, it's a very benign business. But the fact is, in that case, the possibility of a short-term cash reward was what motivated many, many members of building societies to cease to do that. And you know, they turned into something else. Many of them went bust. So, in a short answer, none of the alternatives um, have ever stacked up big enough to challenge traditional capitalism as a mechanism. You mentioned that it's, it, you know, where do you find the equity to grow? And I was interested actually to read the other day that one of the issues with Evergrande in China was that they had started forcing the people that worked for them to lend them money. So not possible in uh, the UK, but but it was possible at least until recently in, in China. Yeah. Uh, there's another big issue that that always grabs headlines that you address in the book around the fact that People have lost faith in capitalism because big companies don't pay enough tax. They don't pay sufficient tax. Amazon, uh, you know, hides where where it is. Google, another one. So where do you come down on this? I come down relatively hard on that and have done for some years. I um, uh, have for many, many years boycotted Starbucks. I don't think they've ever noticed. That <laughs> But firstly, I thought that coffee was revolting. But secondly, you know, the whole business of, you know, licensing the, the brand name, which is owned by, a, I may get this wrong, a Luxembourg or Liechtenstein company, so that you can pay royalties to the place where you pay almost no tax at all, all of that, transfer pricing, um, all sorts of devices. So all of the modern major multinationals, including all of the famous digital ones, have been doing this for a long time and have manipulated their tax rates down to very, very low levels. And they would say, well, hold on, we pay all the taxes we're due to pay in all the territories where we operate. Well, yes, I'm sure they do, but only after they've done the transfer pricing and the royalty payments and all this other stuff, uh, so that on remarkably large figures of turnover, they can be paying tiny amounts of tax in places like the UK. Well, why, why isn't that just legitimate business and, and you know, uh, sort of Darwinism, um, red-blooded capitalism? Well, because all businesses use public services to a greater or lesser extent. They require skilled staff in the territories who are public educated in the public education 
systems, they require hospitals for their staff when they get ill and so on. They should at the very least make a contribution that, that reflects their use of public services wherever they operate, and they should not be allowed to crush the terrestrial and smaller competitors um, who are still trying to survive against the, the onslaught of the, of the giants. So I think that's been clear for years. I think um, things like the, the you know, House of Commons Select Committee um, that challenged uh, several of these, Google and Amazon and so on, a few years ago, led by Margaret Hodge, the Labour MP, was very good at exposing that. Um, we're now moving to a new sort of world where the world is agreeing on a minimum corporate um, mm. profits tax rate of 15%. We'll see whether that makes a real difference. I think the difficulty is still the business of trying to identify how much tax should be paid in a given territory. Where does the, the profit arise? Is it, does it correspond to the, the revenues, the turnover that arises? But anyway, it's good that there is now greater awareness of that issue and it is moving in a sensible direction. The OECD led it and now perhaps rather surprisingly in a way, Joe Biden is leading it. But it is, it, you know, that is a sin of modern big multinational capitalism, there's no doubt about it. Speaking of sin, uh, let's talk about the Sackler family uh, and this issue around corporate philanthropy, which can go very badly wrong, not just for the, the companies, people who are giving it, but also for those who are now receiving it. So we know Sackler family donations tainted with their ownership of Purdue Pharma which developed oxycodone, which is at the heart of America's opioid addiction. So should companies just stay away from philanthropy? Is that the answer? Uh, well, there are two questions really. It's, should companies themselves stay away from philanthropy? Uh, charitable support that you know, it used to be called corporate social responsibility. That's rather uh, out of fashion as a slogan now. And then should billionaire owners of companies, people who've made personal fortunes by founding and running large companies, you know, is their philanthropy legitimate? So my, my personal opinion is companies um, cannot polish their image if their actual fundamental activities are in some way bad. They can't improve their image by just supporting kind of local kids, you know, sports projects or uh, musical theater projects or something, you know, so when big businessmen say to me, why don't you write about our corporate social responsibility program? I say, it's because you're an evil capitalist bastard, you know, uh, and you're wrecking the planet, sir, Herbert. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Not to make it too personal. <laughs> That's right. Um, and I mean, the interesting example is BP, a company which actually I wouldn't put in that category. I think BP is a, an energy company that is doing its best to pivot. It has a long, slow process to pivot from, you know, carbon energy to cleaner energy, but it's on that path. But they've taken an enormous amount of uh, bad publicity for doing sponsorship of the arts in this country because the Extinction Rebellion people turn up and pour oil over themselves in the art exhibition and that kind of thing. So I would say, BP, you might as well stop because it's not, it's not helping your image anymore. Why spend your shareholders' money that way? So A, you can't improve your image. B, in the modern world, you may just attract you know, bad attention, even if your intentions are good. So companies should focus on supporting charities that their staff want to support, things that help the education of their future workforce, um, things that mitigate any damage that they are doing uh, in a charitable sense. But that's the extent of how charities should be involved. As to billionaires, that's a different thing. So I think it's perfectly legitimate to be a billionaire if you've built a big business and it's successful and it's clean and it does a good thing. Um, if you are a billionaire, I think it's much better that you start giving it away than if you just sit on it. Mm -hmm. um, but 
billionaires now take quite a lot of flack, don't they? Um, and if the fortune was made a long time ago, there are, you know, there's a high chance that there's some colonialist or extractive uh, sugar trade, cotton trade, you name it. These are going to be associated with the sort of things that, that, that the world is now very, very focused on to do with slavery and exploitation. So there are tainted fortunes, but they're more likely to be the historic ones. And we come to uh, the Sackler family. That's tricky, isn't it? The Sackler name is on art galleries all over the world. I don't think, you tell me what you think. I don't think they necessarily were putting their name on the art galleries to hide or you know, polish their own personal reputations because they knew that the fortune had been made from a drug that's caused so much harm and addiction and been pushed and sold so hard by the company that they founded. But the, two, the connection between the two things is now toxic. So one imagines one by one, all of those art galleries are likely to take the name of Sackler off. Mm. But I mean, what's, what's your position on that? Yeah, one? I, I mean, I think, I think the difficulty is, you know, and the question is, do, should you give the money back? And, and is that even possible? So that's, you know, for the, those, those organizations that have received the money, I think it becomes, you know, very, very difficult. There's, for anyone who's interested in this, there is a, a brand new book that just won a major prize uh, by another uh, uh, a person we both know, Patrick uh, Radin Keefe, um, all about the the intricacies and interconnections. So, worth worth a read. Um, there are I, loads. My, of my answer would be, I you know, if you can give the money back because it hasn't been spent yet, if you are an institution with a sensitive public image, you should give the money back. If you've already spent it, you can't really give it back. I think of my own Oxford College, Worcester College, Oxford, now at the absolute forefront of, you know, <laughs> of campaigning against just about everything, really, including bringing down statues and so on. But they have a most beautiful new building uh, donated by the Sultan of Perak in Malaysia, uh, who I'm sure is an entirely admirable person, the current Sultan, but his ancestors up to the 1880s were slave owners. So he is probably the great grandson of a slave owner, and that's very late for abolishing slave owning. Uh, uh, and their riches were supported by slavery. Can the college give the, give the money back? Of course it can't. It's been spent. Should it take the name off the building? Well, that's you know uh, that's a tricky decision. Uh, if if the the problem is his ancestors, not the donor himself. I mean, you know the LSE got into terrible trouble, didn't it? Because it was taking money from the Gaddafi family. Well, they could stop doing that, give the money back, not call anything Gaddafi. That, that was simpler, but were these historic uh, benefactions? It's, it's very tricky, really. We've had a, f a flood of, of questions from the audience, Martin. So I'll take oh. them in, uh, in the, the sure. order in which they've come in. A question from Tom Hadley. How do you see the role of representative business organizations? that's national, regional, sectoral, changing, as well as supporting their members, can they shift the dial on responsible business practices and overall reputation of businesses? Mm. Well, thank you for the question, Tom. Um, you'd have to say they're not doing very well at the moment in the UK, are they? Uh, perhaps you differ, but I would have said the CBI is a rather diminished body uh, there used to be a kind of constant dialogue in British public life between Confederation of British Industry, led by big name industrialists, and the TUC, Trade Union Congress, on the other side, arguing it out over, you know, workers' rights and, uh, and, uh, and so on. Now, CBI is a pretty diminished lobby group. Um, uh, it was sort of on the wrong side on the Euro argument, you know, lost the argument on Brexit and so on. It needs a, needs a rather stronger voice, all I can say about it. Institute of Directors, I think, does good work in some respects on issues of governance and so on. It is a source of advice and knowledge, but it's had its own internal problems, actually. Uh, sort of embarrassed itself a bit. 
the Federation of Small Businesses, I would give of those three bodies that I'm aware of, I'd give the higher marks to because I think they speak out very clearly for small businesses. But big business doesn't appear to have a particularly coherent voice in this country now. Would it help if it did have? Uh, I'm not so sure because the biggest businesses now are so multinational and what we need pressure in favor of to help is probably the, it's the small to medium, it's the medium sized high growth businesses that are important for the future. Not really, I, I'm not sure who speaks for them. So no, I, I don't think they're doing a terribly good job right now. All right, we've got a question from the metaverse, Martin, uh, coming from, from the people watching on Facebook. Nick Sutton is asking, any views on Kate Rayworth's economic model, Donut Economics? I'm afraid I'm completely unfamiliar with it. So unless Edie can give me a brisk summary, I'm, I'm absolutely lost on that one. We might ask Nick to come back in with that one. Um, I will go to another question. Zoe Billingham uh, asking, do you think COVID has changed the contract between government and business given the scale of uh, support? Did government miss a trick by not making support during the crisis conditional on certain behaviors? Uh, it, yes, very, very good question. I think, first of all, what would you expect government to do in a crisis? I think you can think of government as being, in some senses, like a very big insurance company. So when there is a catastrophe, of course, government has to step in and uh, support uh, in, a, in a lot of different ways. And the furlough scheme, I think, rather took everyone by surprise. No one had ever really heard of a furlough scheme. Furlough is not a, it's a sort of American word, not a British word. And suddenly the government was paying up to like 80% of 11 point something million workers wages by borrowing out of thin air gigantic sums of money. Um, what should business be doing different in return for that? I don't think the answer is business should cease to operate on a profit-driven shareholder value-driven model, because actually that model is, is in all normal circumstances a very successful model and contributes to prosperity and generates tax revenues. And I don't think you can say, well, no, business is going to be something different from now on. It's going to be like a sort of uh, social enterprise model and forget the shareholders interest. The fact is businesses and all their workers and executives have paid taxes all these years into government in the hope and expectation that if there's a crisis, government will step in and do the government's duty. Uh, to carry out as much of a rescue as it can. So um, I think the general tone of um, what you might call capitalist triumphalism is right out of fashion now. It's, it is certainly not uh, at all acceptable for people to boast in a sort of loads of money, you know, 1980s way about their wealth and their success. There's a difference of tone, but I don't see why uh, what the government did of necessity during the pandemic crisis changes the fundamental uh, way in which business should operate or be bossed, you know, told what to do by government. It works better on the whole if government doesn't tell business what to do, regulates what needs to be regulated, but allows the free market system to, to, to thrive. So I can't see why that should change. Well, I've just re-immersed myself in donut uh, economics, Martin. So the, the, I'll just summarize it very briefly, but Kate Rayworth argues that we've got to change the goal of our economic system from increasing GDP to creating a society that can provide enough materials and services for everyone while utilizing resources in a way that doesn't threaten our future security and prosperity. If I were gonna put that in a, in a sustainable development goals um, language, I would say, instead of uh, thinking about profit uh, or even profit alongside purpose, which I know you take issue with the word purpose, uh, that we should be thinking about as goals, 
reducing inequality, eliminating um, extreme poverty, educating everybody, thinking about the life uh, on land and in the seas. So she, it's a much more detailed um, way and, and I'm not sure how to go about it, but in terms of how you, um, where you pin your North Star, uh, what thoughts there? Well, it comes back to me through the fog of memory that probably 10 or 12 years ago, I commissioned you to write a piece for me about the, the idea of the zero growth economy yeah. becoming fashionable. I've still got the, the, the cover of that, um, that, that magazine, magazine on my wall. Wonderful. Very good. So, uh, and the difficulty with those kinds of ideas, which have many appealing and uh sort of motherhood and apple pie aspects to them i don't deny that all of those things you've just listed are worthy goals but i believe you still need you still need economic growth and you still need uh, a profitable um sustainably profitable capitalist system to create the growth that underpins the gradual bringing out of poverty of more and more people and so on and that it's it, it sounds rather it's a first world argument which wouldn't resonate so well in the second and third worlds is is my simple answer but without you know a proper knowledge of kate rayworth's work i don't i wouldn't want to go further than that well there's a question that leads on from that from francesca cave saying then what extent do you think that those left behind regionally, nationally, can ever catch up to those more affluent places? Is it possible that the inequality gap is just an intrinsic element of a capitalist society? Well, inequality is in some ways intrinsic in capitalist society. It turned out to be intrinsic in communist and socialist societies. They, they had a dominating elite who lived a much more comfortable life uh, than the ordinary folks. So no one ever solved that fundamental problem or uh, the actual achievement of the abolition of inequality is perhaps, you know, uh, a dream beyond achievement. As to the left behind, well, if we think, first of all, nationally, we have this government agenda about leveling up at the moment. You could be, I could be, really quite cynical about that. It turns out that swathes of um, old working class north, north of England voted conservative largely for Brexit related reasons, for reasons that they didn't have faith in the then Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn. Boris Johnson, a very kind of opportunist political leader, finds himself with that body of voters who voted for him comes up with the idea of leveling up, but what does it mean? How do you actually level up between poor ex-mining towns uh, in my part of the northeast of England and prosperous towns in the home counties that are full of thriving, you know, digital businesses and so on? Well, what are the keys? The keys are education, more education, skills training, really good skills training, you know, software coding, that kind of thing, not, not you know, useless kind of arts uh bad arts degrees and so on uh, <laughs> and uh then broadband links and transport links and all of that stuff so some of its infrastructure and boris Johnson would say he's working on the infrastructure a whole huge piece of it is skills education and basic education and i think that applies if you if you say the left behind around the world uh the education piece is hugely important and in the poorer parts of the world, basic healthcare and, you know, states and governments can provide that, but actually big philanthropists, what the Gates Foundation is doing for healthcare in parts of Africa, eliminating some diseases which cause, you know, enormous uh, poverty and social disjunction, as it were, that's very important too. So uh, what do I think? I think it does still largely rest with government to provide the skills, education, the infrastructure, the broadband networks and so on, uh, and to make it attractive for 
private sector employers to go in to those areas. That's where the leveling up will really happen is when you get a lot of uh, big businesses going and investing. So uh, in my part of the world, we're very proud still of the Nissan factory near Sunderland, absolute global flagship of automotive manufacturing. It's gonna have a battery gigafactory alongside it and so on. It's very high skilled work, uh, a lot of supplier companies around it. You could say, well, actually, thank you, Margaret Thatcher for making that possible in the eighties because they gave lots of incentives to Asian manufacturers to come in and do that kind of thing in places like Sunderland and uh, Teesside and so on. So I don't know if that's a good answer to that, but, but I would come back principally to education in the poorest parts of the world, very importantly to healthcare in more developed places, plus more transport, more broadband. Uh, and I would add educating women, especially in the poorer parts of the world, uh, is incredibly important. There is a gender question that's that's down there. I'm going to ask one that's come to me, um, however, via the Q&A. Has capitalism failed in its core goal of delivering improvements in living standards? And if so, what can be done about it? Our productivity growth rate has flatlined for years and is expected to be around 1% per annum after this initial bounce back. Median earnings have also long stagnated, particular in the UK. Hmm. Okay. Uh, on the other hand, thank you for the question. Do you think your own living standard has improved over that period? So what does living standard consist of, it would consist of breadth of consumer choice, um, freedom to choose different kinds of work and ways of working. How clean is the air? How green is your town? All these things, I think in terms of quality of life, um, much of which is to do with consumerism, consumer products, consumer choices, but that is a big part of everybody's life. Um, I think that capitalism has created an almost continuous progress in that respect. It's true, we have a productivity problem in this country, and I have highlighted earlier this inequality of earnings issue, which I think is beyond justification, the, the multiplication of the wealth of the top 1% in the UK and the US is a kind of embarrassment. It's a blot on the capitalist system. The, the city of London, where I worked for 15 years, um, is, is a bit of a blot because it, you know, it turned to just making money for the sake of making money in a silo with no awareness of the wider social impact. There are all these faults, but actually in terms of uh, of the quality of life, I, I think you can make a case that uh, Kaplan hasn't failed. It has contributed here and in many other places in the world to a continuous improvement in the quality of life. Let's see if I can get two more questions uh, back in. There's a question from Peter Todd. Free market capitalism has worked for centuries in the UK, despite despotic 19th century inequalities. Big challenge now is China's regime, which operates state capitalism. Cheaper Chinese imports have undermined the West's version of capitalism and leaning towards philanthropy. Price is king and squeezes out altruism. Who will win? State capitalism or free market capitalism? Uh -huh. Great question, great question. So I am not a big fan of, uh, of China. My, probably in, in all my 30 years of writing for The Spectator, uh, my most famous cover piece for The Spectator was uh, headline China is not going to be the next great world power. Um, and uh, it is, uh, the fact is, to thrive and prosper as a capitalist in China, you have to kowtow to the Communist Party, you have to have a Communist Party member on your board in your executive suite. Uh, it's a highly controlled form of capitalism in the case of some of those leading companies, Huawei, there are big question marks over to what extent they are 
operating state policy through capitalism. Um, you know, the internet, the social media are tightly controlled there and so on. I don't think it's a good model, nor do I think it's Belt and Road Initiative the way China is going and exploiting the resources of other countries in Africa and so on is good. I think in the end, good triumphs over bad. This is, you know, that's a big thing to say, but I think it generally does. And I think the Chinese system has very powerful internal contradictions and tensions between the poor coastal provinces, the, sorry, more prosperous coastal provinces and rising middle classes, poor internal uh, provinces. It's, you know, autocratic grip cannot last forever because that isn't what the people fundamentally want in the end. So, you know, it'll have its time and, and it will crumble as Soviet communism did, I believe. We may not live to see that, but it'll happen. Whereas I think the basic model of free market capitalism regulated, operating within democratic societies according to sensible rules and aware of its social context will thrive and continue. Well, let's come back to, I think this will be the final question. Uh, let's come back to this gender issue. Uh, Annabelle Smith says that gender inequality remains pervasive. Should capitalism be doing a better job creating financial and social impact by increasing women's access to capital, promoting workplace equity, creating products and services that improve the lives of women and girls? Hmm. Well, uh, yes to all of that. Uh, I revert to what I said earlier that let's not be too harsh on globalization uh, as a force because actually that has helped women uh, to achieve a somewhat higher standard of living for themselves and their families. And it probably has helped educational levels in many poor countries, but there's an enormously long way to go. The financial system, all big banks, private equity, venture capital companies would say, oh no, we're absolutely you know, gender blind for the way we lend, the way we uh, invest doesn't look like that from the statistics. There's a long way to go. And I know many successful women entrepreneurs who would say, no, we're still up against it. If when we pitch to the VCs, they're all blokes, you know, uh, they are, we feel demeaned by their attitude. So I'm totally in sympathy with all of that. I'm very proud of the Spectator's Economic Innovator of the Year Awards uh, in which we've had a number of, uh, female-led ventures that have been award winners, but they, their number out of the total number of entries is still relatively small. So I think I would say keep the pressure on the banks and the investment firms to really do that sincerely and not just, you know, uh, mouth the uh, appropriate PR slogans about it. There's a long way to go. I should add that the CPP is... Um launching a big report in 2022 uh, about this issue. And in fact, there is a link in the chat to the CPP's work on women in the labor market. All right, Martin, we are nearly at the end here. I want to ask you for what's your call to action for people in the audience here? If they care about this as an issue, besides buying your book, what should they do? Well, start a business would be good. Um, I just think keep the pressure on, really. I do think on the whole, big capitalism, that means big companies, and now they've got all of these messages and they're acting on them. But I think the message about climate action, about gender equality, about fair treatment of workers and so on, uh, those messages have really got into the system. They've got into the boardroom now. Uh, so that's good. But both as investors and as customers and as employees and potential employees, uh, everyone who might be in an audience like this can keep the pressure on. So I guess that would be my message. Perfect. All right. Well, Martin's latest book, just to remind you, The Good, the Bad and the Greedy, uh, Why We've Lost Faith with, uh, in Capitalism, 
is available. And if you enter a code uh, on the checkout page of a link that's in the chat right now, you can get a 35% discount. Uh, and delighted to have been with you guys here today. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, and you can also watch all of the past events of the CPP on their website, including the Inclusive Growth Conference. So thanks very much from me. And from me. Thank you very much, Edie.